We are taking a, just a brief pause uh, these next few weeks uh, from our study in Revelation. We'll come back, uh, Lord willing, New Year's Day to the seventh church. But uh, in light of Christmas, we're going to consider a couple of other passages these next two weeks. Tonight, uh, we're looking at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, with a focus on verses 14 and and really verse 15. Since Jesus is the reason for the season, what is the problem for which he is the solution? We want to reflect on that tonight from Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Hear now God's word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman who saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree. And I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. All the days of your life, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it. On our hearts tonight. And there is much here 
that puzzles us, much that we could discuss, that we simply do not have time to tackle. But I want to ask the question, what is the problem for which Jesus is the solution? And Jesus is promised here in verse 15. This is a Christmas text. Jesus at Christmas comes in fulfillment of this one who will bruise the head of the serpent. This male child who will bruise the head of the serpent, even while he himself is bruised. And so we want to ponder our way a bit anyway through this passage. And I want to think about three things with you tonight. I want to think with you about the problem of the evil one. And I want you to think about the punishment of the evil one. And then I want you to have uh, with me think through some practical considerations in light of the teaching. In the first place, the problem of the evil one. Now, I know it's almost Christmas and we should be thinking about Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger and the shepherds in the fields and the wise men who come with gifts and the the, the donkey and the other animals that attended the birth of our Savior Jesus. And I want you to think instead about the evil one. I know that seems strange, but I want you to understand. Why did Jesus come? He came to deal with the enemy of our souls. And it was promised here that he would do so in verse 15. And so I want you to think about the promise, uh, of the problem of the evil one. You know, at Christmas time, we we sing a lot of wonderful Christmas carols about joy and gladness. We even sing some silly secular songs about frosty and uh, reindeer, perhaps, with red noses. You certainly hear them. Uh, But it's it's interesting how the old carols also force us to think about this enemy. We, we sang of him twice, three times tonight, actually twice in the hymn, if you look in your bulletin. We sang of him uh, when we sang, a good, uh, a God rest you merry gentlemen. In the first stanza, we sang that, that Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. And in the third, st- or, third uh, or fourth uh, stanza, the last stanza in your bulletin, uh, Jesus came to free all those who trust in him from Satan's power and might. And then in the hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which is about rejoicing in his coming, again in the stanza, the second one in your bulletin that begins, O Come, Thou Rod of Jesse. That's a reference to Isaiah that out of um, the lineage of David, Jesse's... um, Father would come to this rod who would free thine own from Satan's tyranny. I don't know if you've reflected on that much this Christmas, but John in 1 John chapter 3 specifically says that the reason the Son of God came into the world was to deliver us from the enemy, to rescue us. From the enemy of our soul. 1 John chapter 3 verse 8. The reason the son of God came was to destroy the work of the devil. Now taking all that in mind. Christians believe because the Bible teaches that that there is a real personal 
evil being at work in the world. Uh, and that's, a, that's a, a brain exploder for many people in our day. And Christians can make two mistakes about this enemy. Uh, C.S. Lewis put it essentially like this. We can, we can make the mistake of making too much of Satan. And we can make the mistake of making too little of Satan. We can, on the one hand, attribute every evil thing directly to him and take no responsibility for ourselves and sort of, as it were, see him behind every rock lurking. Or we can simply ignore him entirely, pretend he doesn't exist and and doesn't do anything. But the Bible does not let us do so. The Bible presents Satan in chapter 3 as the instigator the perpetuator of evil, the one who enticed our first parents into rebelling against God, the one who desired them to join him in rebelling against God. And so we want to think about the problem of this enemy. He shows up here, and, uh, and the text doesn't specifically say that his name is Satan. It says the serpent, but it's a talking serpent. You actually have to go to the last book of the Bible for the Bible itself to explicitly say uh, very clearly in Revelation chapter 12 that this is in fact Satan. In Revelation chapter 12, uh, listen to what John tells you. He sees a vision uh, and it uh, says in verse 9 that the great dragon, there's this battle that happens in, in heavenly places and the great dragon is thrown down that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And so the Bible is very explicit here that, that either that this is the devil masking himself as a serpent or snake, or the devil has um, uh, taken possession of a snake for his own purposes. It doesn't really spell out exactly what's happening here, but this serpent speaks and he questions what God has said. His, his aim is to undermine Adam and Eve's belief that God is good and that God is open-handed and generous. When he says, did God really say to you that you cannot eat of the trees of the garden? You see, Satan right there is, is, is making them question, is God really good or not? God had said, you may eat of any tree of the garden except for one. And Satan's aiming to twist that in their hearts and make it sound like God is really miserly, that he's really kept back good things from them. He's trying to get them to not believe that their father in heaven, who walks with them in the garden in the cool of the day, is gracious and generous. And in fact, he goes so far as to say, God's been lying to you. You will not really die if you eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when God had, you, God had said, you will surely die. So he openly contradicts God, calls God a liar, and deceives Eve, and she eats, and she gives to Adam, who's right there, and he eats, and they rebel against God. They basically say to their Father in heaven, we will not live under your roof. We will not have you rule over us. We're going to do what we want to do, and... Friends, our hearts have been saying that to God ever since. But it was the enemy who was behind this. He instigated it. He enticed them. He deceived them. And he has forever been since perpetuating rebellion against 
God. And you know the terrible consequences of it, we don't have time to go into, but you know how it isolated them. It made them all alone in that garden as they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God, their generous father. They're they're hiding. They're ashamed. They're fearful. Adam says, I was afraid. And, And they're isolated from each other as husband and wife when they ought to have enjoyed friendship and community. Suddenly, they're apart from one another, um, so much so that when, when God speaks to Adam and says, where are you? Not because God needs to know, but he's trying to woo Adam. Adam, have you figured out that you're hiding from me? Adam says, I heard you. I was afraid. So I hid myself, not we, not us, me. It's all about him. There's this This distance between husband and wife here. And when it comes down to God saying, well, what happened? Uh, Adam blames Eve, his own wife. The woman you made. He blames God too. You made her. It's her fault. It's your fault. And Eve, of course, lays blame on Satan himself. And so all these terrible consequences that the family relationship is broken up over this. The the closest of friends are no longer the closest of friends. And there's fear before God. And and, uh, it will tell a terrible tale uh, over the course of their family life and the course of the history of humanity. But it all comes back to here, the enticement of the enemy who aim to get them on his side against God. That's what it all comes down to, the problem of this enemy. We, we ought to say in passing here that it is striking that this very generous father, this loving father, when it comes time for him to reckon with them about what happened, he, he deals graciously with Adam and graciously with Eve but he doesn't, even, he doesn't even ask the serpent what happened. He just simply tells the serpent what curses are coming his way. He doesn't give the serpent any opportunity to explain himself, any opportunity to repent or ask forgiveness. He simply says, uh, cursed are you. And that, that ought to be a reminder to us, as others have noted, uh, that God has dealt with us in a way that he has not dealt with this enemy. That God so generously has offered you and I forgiveness at the death of his own son, a kind of forgiveness he never offered to this enemy of our souls, this evil one. Notice, secondly, the punishment of this evil one. And it's found in in verse 15, speaking directly to Satan himself, he says, there's going to be war. There's going to be war. There's going to be war on three fronts. There's going to be uh, enmity, which is the word for a a state of hatred, a state of opposition and antagonism. There's going to be enmity on three fronts between you and the woman, between her offspring and your offspring, and then finally between this male who will crush your head while you bruise his heel. And so I want you to think about the punishment of this evil one that's predicted here. In the first place, war on the first front. He says, God says to him, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Uh, it's, it's from a verb to be an enemy to. In other words, what's God doing? God is placing Satan and the woman at war with one another. 
Satan thinks that he's got Eve captive to his own purposes, that she's aligned with him and she has aligned herself with him in this rebellion. And God says, I'm going to totally undo what you think you just got done. I'm going to overrule what you have done, Satan. And I'm going to put in Eve's heart a state of of being an enemy to you, not to me. You see what God has done in in grace. He breaks the power of the enemy that has hold on her. And so Eve will no longer walk in lockstep serving the purposes of this enemy. But she will now, by God's grace, begin to freely from her own heart decide to walk against the enemy and with the Lord. We have every reason to believe that this is the promise of salvation for Eve herself. The friend of Satan who had become the enemy of God is now by God's grace told that she will become the enemy of Satan. And we believe, therefore, the friend of God. But there's going to be war on a second front. Notice he says, and I will put a state of enmity between not only you and the woman, but between your offspring and her offspring. This is a promise that there will be a lineage, uh, that there will be offspring or seed, depending upon your translation, that will flow from the woman and the enemy. And these uh, two seed will be at war with one another. Who is this speaking of? Uh, People who, I believe, people who either are going to be for God or against God. Ultimately, either you're going to be for him or against him. You know the, the, the lineage here can't be purely physical lineage. We do not believe that God is saying here that Satan somehow bears physical human children. Um, or that uh, the fallen angels, now demons, are physically reproducing. And that's what it means by offspring. We have no indication from anywhere else in the Bible that angels propagate themselves or that demons propagate themselves. And so what I believe this refers to, as many others do, is that there is going to be this line of humanity that from the heart aligns itself with the enemy and so can be said to be his offspring. And yet there's going to be this line of the woman who are in opposition to them. Um, and so uh, how does that play out? I, I, think, I think the Bible makes this clear in a couple of places, which will help us, I think, understand. Uh, Adam and Eve have a child whom they named Cain. And Cain uh, goes, uh, grows up to be um, the black sheep of the family who in anger and envy towards his own brother, he takes him out into the field and kills him. He's the first murderer here in Scripture, human murderer. Uh, the Bible says in 1 John, New Testament, chapter 3, verse 12, that Cain was of the evil one. He was of the evil one. He was aligned with and resembled the devil who is a murderer from the beginning. You'll get this kind of very strong language in in Jesus' um, conversation uh, with some of the religious leaders of his day in John chapter 8, verses 31 through 44. If you want to turn there sometime, it's very stark uh, that these these physical descendants of Abraham 
say to Jesus, we are, we are Abraham's children. He's our father. And Jesus will say to them, your father is the devil. It's very blunt and direct. And I would not say this myself were the Bible not so clear about it, that Cain was of the evil one, that Jesus said these religious leaders were, were of the enemy, that their father was the devil. It's absolutely shocking. And yet the Bible says it's true. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to say that all of us, all of us by nature have aligned ourselves with the enemy in the rebellion. And in that sense, it can be said of us that we are but children bearing the image of our father, the enemy, who hates God. What is this other line then? What is this line of the woman? This is the line we believe in which God has placed against their own natural inclinations a heart which has begun by grace to hate the works of the devil and to want to follow in the footsteps of the true God, their father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this is, these are not people who are by nature any different than anyone else. But rather, these are people who, born into this world with a heart that is naturally at enmity with God, leading to rebellion against God and disobedience, God has, by grace, placed into them a new heart. Uh, He has changed their heart. He has given them the, the first blush of love. For what is right. So that they have begun to love what God loves. And hate what God hates. To love righteousness. And to hate wickedness. And to want to walk in step with the father. And want to walk against the purposes of the enemy of their souls. And it is entirely by grace that there should be these two lines. And we'll come back to that in a moment as we consider ourselves But I would say this to you, you are either of the Lord by his grace or you remain in heart of the enemy walking in the purposes of the enemy who hates the Lord. And that should cause all of us to reflect on what has God done with us and has he had mercy on us through Christ. And you see Christ pictured here in the last phrase when he says, Uh, There will be war on a third front when he says he will bruise your head. Speaking to the serpent, there will be a male child who will come and will crush the head of the serpent. Even while at the same time it says you, the serpent, will bruise his heel. We believe that this is the first promise of the gospel. That, that right there in the Garden of Eden, from the very earliest days of the rebellion of all mankind in Adam and Eve. God had promised a redeemer, a rescuer who would triumph over the enemy of our soul. And and so you have this expression, he will crush your head. The, The picture of striking a decisive mortal blow so that he stands as a conqueror, as it were, a king with his foot on the head of the of the conquered enemy. Saying, this is what Jesus will do. He'll be a champion, victorious in battle over you. And yet he will not be untouched in that battle. You will bruise his 
heal. We see here a picture of what happens in the triumph of Christ over the enemy on the cross. What do I mean by that? Colossians chapter 2, Paul's epistle in the New Testament, says that on the cross, in Colossians chapter 2, verses uh, 14 and 15, that God canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross, putting it upon Jesus, putting our sin, the debt that we deserve, the record of our debt upon Christ on the cross. And he, Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Jesus was was hung naked upon a cross and the enemy had thought he had won. I got rid of the Son of God. I've defeated him and, and his own creatures are killing him. But it was the moment of the Son's greatest glory that it was his purpose from the very beginning to come and to be the one who would go to the cross to take the record of your debt and satisfy your obligations to die, to bear the wrath of God. And to satisfy that before the Father. And so to defeat the purpose of the enemy. And he was raised from the grave and he was seated in heavenly places above all rule and power and authority and dominion. Angels and demons and anything else the Bible says. And from there he rules and reigns. And so while he was bruised as it were by the enemy, he has destroyed the work of the enemy. So the enemy no longer has a humanity in lockstep with him and his purposes. But by grace, through faith in that Redeemer, some have begun by God's kindness to begin to hate the work of the enemy. To begin to hate what God hates and love what God loves. Oh friends, this is the first promise of the gospel. And we have every reason to believe that by faith in this promise... Even the earliest, even our first parents had salvation through faith in this Redeemer. God is undoing the work of the enemy. And in doing so is punishing the enemy and guaranteeing his destruction while he promises the victory of our Redeemer. This is good news that the, the Garden of Eden reappears on the cross of Christ where he gains a victory over the enemy on our behalf. Where Adam had failed his wife Eve, Jesus has not failed. But as a good husband to his bride, the church, he has beaten back the assault. Of the enemy for you. And so he has destroyed the work of the devil. Now what are some practical considerations for us. As we think about that. One of them is this. That what it means to be a Christian. Is to be given a new heart by God. That has begun. Not perfectly. Not completely. But in principle has begun. To love what he loves. And to hate what he hates. To love righteousness and to hate wickedness. And yet what the Bible says is that between the time that you are given that new heart and the time you go to heaven when you get made perfect forever with only and always pure love for what is good, you will in this life have at work in you a war. 
a battle because of the Holy Spirit who loves what is good is at work in you and you have a new heart and yet sin remains in you. It indwells you as Paul says in Romans chapter seven so that your flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit lusts against the flesh so that there are times when the apostle Paul would say, you do not do what you want to do. Oh, the good I want to do, he says, I do not do. But what I do not want to do, the evil, that I do. Oh, who will rescue me? And the Christian is the one who's begun to say, only Jesus can rescue me. And Jesus does rescue me. In in other words, one one of the things you have to recognize is when you find in your heart this war, it's a sign not of death, but of life. When you find this war at work in you, uh, you longing to do what God wants you to do, wanting to fight against sin and rebellion. When you find that war at work, it's not a mark of death. It's actually a mark of life. But the enemy, the enemy comes along and he says, do you see? See, you still have some inclinations to follow me. Therefore, you're dead. Therefore, you don't really belong to the Lord. Therefore, you ought to just give up. Just quit trying to walk with Jesus. It's it's all a farce. You're a fake. That's what the enemy says to you. He wants you to despair of yourself. But, but, But it's helpful to understand that between the time you become a Christian and the time you go to heaven, you will be in a position of doing battle, learning to fight the good fight, learning to say no to sin and say yes to righteousness. And that will feel like war. It won't feel like a peaceful, easy feeling. If you just come to Jesus, everything will be easy. It won't feel that way. Christians are people who struggle with sin, but aim to struggle against sin by Christ. The, the, the story is told, I have a pastor friend who tells it, uh, of, of an abusive farmer who all his life he had abused his workers, his animals. He'd been violent, used terrible language in the home to his children and wife. He was a hard man and cynical about religion until in a time of revival by the Spirit of God, he was brought to believe in Jesus. And he had a new heart. And and at first, everything seemed to clear up. His life made a dramatic change. And, And his wife was amazed. There was no more abusive language. There was no more bad behavior, no mistreatment of the animals. And then a few weeks went by and he got really frustrated and he broke down in a rage and suddenly he was back to his old behavior. And he, um, so despising what he had just done and said, he ran into the kitchen and he threw himself on the table, weeping and sobbing. And his wife says to him, what's the matter? And he says, oh, I'm no different than I've ever been. I've just done what I've always done. And she says, oh, no, my dear, there is all the difference in the world because you would have never done this before. You would have never shown the slightest tinge of remorse or repentance. But now your heart is broken over your behavior. There was a new principle of life at work in him. That is a sign that you have, by God's grace, become one of the lines of the seed of the woman. You've begun to oppose the work of the enemy. But we should close by saying this. If your heart can be at peace with sin and rebellion, 
If you can live day in and day out with no conscience, if you can live day in and day out with no desire to be made more like Jesus, but walk with pleasure in sin, untroubled by it, then that is a sign of tremendous sickness and probably spiritual death in your life. The Christian is the one who says, I want to do good and evil is right there with me, but oh Jesus, help me. The Christian is the one who prays like in the Lord's Prayer, oh forgive me my debts and lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. The Christian is the one who pleads like David in Psalm 19, keep your servant from willful sin. May they not rule over me. The Christian is the one who sings like this last song says, Oh, to grace how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let your grace now like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Oh, take my heart and take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. Let's sing that as a prayer to God. Let's stand.